Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Monday, May 16. I'm Tom Tilley and Katrina Blouse, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when I say nuclear power? Oh gosh, is it uh, the three-eyed fish from The Simpsons maybe? (laughs) Chernobyl certainly does come to mind. Uh, But then, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time travelling through Europe pre-COVID and saw a tonne of nuclear power plants. No three-eyed fish in sight. Yeah, yeah. It's almost never discussed here very seriously. Uh, It has a lower carbon footprint than fossil fuels such as coal. And so it could be part of the uh, net zero um, pathway. As you say, other countries have embraced it, the US, France. So in this episode of The Briefing, we're asking why it hasn't taken off here, despite Australia being one of the biggest producers of uranium in the world. The conversation inevitably leads to, well, where are you going to build the bloody thing? And no electorate, no matter how nuclear friendly they are, want to see a big nuclear plant like where Homer works in The Simpsons steaming away in the middle of their town. (laughs) (laughs) The good, the bad and the ugly of nuclear energy. That's coming up right after the headlines for today. With the election just five days away now, almost there, um, the Prime Minister Scott Morrison held his official campaign launch in Brisbane yesterday, focusing on a new housing policy for young people. And one of the main elements is that first home buyers will be able to use 40% of their super to buy a house. This will make it a bit easier, you know for Australians to buy their first home sooner, taking years off the need to pay rent and the challenges of saving. I've got to say, this really got my attention. That that was Scott Morrison there talking about that new proposed policy. The most you'll be able to take out is 50 grand or 40% of your super, whichever is more. And you'll need a 5% deposit to be eligible. The opposition are trying to can the idea already. They've actually accepted a lot of policy proposals put forward by the LNP this campaign. But this one, they say, will drive up housing prices. So number one, it doesn't help the people who need help. Number two, it adds fuel to the fire. It makes it harder to buy. That's Jason Clare, who's the shadow housing minister. Now, that announcement we just talked about from the government came with another one. It's a plan to give older people earlier access to super concessions if they downsize their home. So at 55 years old, you'll be able to put 300 grand into super um, without copying a tax. Critics say that could actually just encourage people to sell their bigger home but put these downsizers into competition with first home buyers when they go to buy the next smaller place. And all this comes as Scott Morrison is trying to reset his image, talking up his performance during the pandemic. I had one focus as your Prime Minister, save the country. Yeah, he gave that to a very supportive crowd there. All the Liberal Party uh, members and politicians and former politicians in the room. And that comes after his promise not to be such a bulldozer on Friday. So he's sort of changing his message heading into the last week. I think for some people it will be too late. 2.5 million people have already gone and cast their votes and I'm one of them actually. Yeah, me too. I've already voted as well. And I think a lot of people are kind of sick of politics already. That's why they wanted to get it out of the way. I've got to say, though, when I heard him say uh, I wanted to save the country, I thought, well, during that time in the pandemic, it seemed like the state premiers had a heck of a lot more power than he did. Yeah, I think a lot of people will see it that way. They saw the state premiers as the hero. And while they were grateful for JobKeeper, they see the prime minister as the person who ordered the vaccines too late. 
We'll go to the US now where a teenager who is suspected of killing 10 people will be charged with hate crimes. The evidence that we have uncovered so far makes no mistake that this is an absolute racist hate crime. That's Buffalo Police Commissioner Joseph Gramaglia there. Um, It's alleged the 18-year-old drove three hours to a black neighbourhood before opening fire at the supermarket and he broadcast the shooting live on Twitch, the streaming platform, for at least two minutes before it was cut off. He had already been investigated for making threatening statements as a minor and it's understood he was inspired by the Australian behind the Christchurch shooting. And tributes are pouring in for the former Aussie Test cricketer Andrew Simons who died at just 46 years old in a car accident at the weekend. Andrew's a, a legend, you know, he's a legend cricketer and he's a legend Queenslander. So there'll be a lot of people who uh, are grieving uh, his loss of life. Yeah, absolutely. That's Queensland State Police Minister Mark Ryan there and a police investigation is underway. Emergency crews tried to revive him and so did a couple of nearby farmhands after his car left the road and rolled late on Saturday night near Townsville. Yeah, very sad story. Um, He was much loved. He was a great all-rounder, played 26 test matches, um, won two World Cups was very good um, with the white ball, given he could bat, bowl, spin and medium pace. He's being remembered by a lot of his fellow players, like Adam Gilchrist, who tweeted, think of your most loyal, fun, loving friend who would do anything for you. That's Roy. Sadly, uh, he has two young kids as well. So he's survived by them as well as his wife. And gosh, it just feels like so many cricketing greats have lost their lives this year, Tom. This actually makes number three after Rod Marsh and Shane Warne both died from heart attacks. And Shanghai is finally starting to ease restrictions after more than six weeks in lockdown. Apparently shopping malls, department stores and supermarkets will start to reopen as well as hair salons and vegetable markets. It seems so kind of weird, doesn't it, to hear about uh, other countries going into lockdown. We were discussing this earlier, Tom, about how no one's really talking about how we in Australia are in the middle Mm. of a third Omicron wave right now. Case numbers are so high, 50,000 cases every day. I know this is not as high as the January wave, but per capita we actually have one of the highest case rates Mm. in the world right now. Yeah, and we're seeing around 30 to 40 deaths a day at the moment in Australia, which is a huge number compared to last year where, you know, one or two deaths was making the news each day. Oh, 60-year-old man and such and such. And Mm. our attitude has changed. And, you know, I guess that's the right thing to do at this stage of the pandemic. But when you compare it to last year, it's quite stark. And some good news for Ukraine. Uh, What a moment. The cheese fest of the year, Eurovision, (laughs) has struck again. Um, This time, you could argue getting a little bit political, although the Kulush Orchestra were obviously very good with their performance of Stefania. The song has actually become an anthem for war-torn Ukraine with lyrics like I'll always find my way home even if all roads are destroyed. Uh, Volodymyr Zelensky had to give them special permission to leave the country during wartime. And following their performance, the lead singer called for more help. Please help Ukraine, Mariupol. Help Azovstal right now. Yeah, that is a beautiful moment. I've got to say, it did sound like a pretty rousing tune, even just that snippet we heard there. Uh, Australia's Sheldon Riley finished in 15th place. 
All right, Katrina, we'll catch you tomorrow. Jan Friends joining us as we talk about the good, bad and ugly of nuclear energy. Australia produces one-third of the world's uranium, yet since 1999 it has banned the use of nuclear power. Should Australia go nuclear? What about nuclear? Do you think we'll ever have nuclear power stations in Australia? Yeah, I think so. We must keep the nuclear option open. So as you can hear there, there is some debate about nuclear energy in Australia, but we've heard basically nothing about it at all during the election campaign, Jan Fran. Yeah, so we're going to try and work out why, particularly given that other countries around the world, the UK, France, are really looking to expand their nuclear energy program, partly as a way of achieving net zero emissions by 2050. Mike Foley is the climate and energy correspondent for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. He's a great communicator on what can be normally a very dense topic. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Are you surprised that the nuclear option almost isn't an option, even a debate at all during the election campaign here in Australia? Look, it doesn't surprise me, but nuclear power has bubbled away in the political background, um, in Canberra especially, for the past decade, really, or, or more. But it's a politically hot topic, so I'm not surprised that come election time, every politician, no matter which side of the debate they fall on, goes quiet. Um, I think the number one reason is when the election gets to the to the pointy end and you're talking about seat by seat campaigning and then you start talking about nuclear power, the conversation inevitably leads to, well, where are you going to build the bloody thing? And no electorate, no matter how um, nuclear friendly they are, don't want to see a big nuclear plant like where Homer works in The Simpsons steaming away in the middle of their town. <laughs> Yeah, it does seem to have a bit of a Simpsons vibe to it, doesn't it? Every time I think of nuclear power, I think of the three-eyed fish that swims in the river that's been tainted because of nuclear. But I do keep hearing that while it's certainly not emissions-free by any means, that it does have a lower kind of carbon footprint compared to some fossil fuels such as coal. How do the two sources compare? Well, nuclear is emissions-free in the energy that it generates, but you've got to bury the radioactive waste. And a lot of people argue that Australia does have some of the best places in the world in the middle of the desert that are geologically very stable to bury the waste. Um, And we currently bury our nuclear medical waste out in the desert too. Coal at the moment is, you know, obviously very emissions intensive. There is some belated moves afoot to, to get carbon capture, um, you know, so you sort of suck the greenhouse emissions out of the coal plants as they hit the atmosphere into play, but they're completely uncommercial. They're not operating anywhere in the world. So nuclear is a good option in terms of addressing energy needs and climate change. It's, it's a great option. But, you know, there are some ins and outs with it, which I'm sure we'll, we'll get into. Is it a crucial part of getting the world to net zero by 2050 or could we do it all with renewables? Yeah, that's a good question. The International Energy Agency is an advocate for – they're technology agnostic, by the way, um, and they've been in the past before climate change became such a thorny issue that they, they were a big advocate for fossil fuels. They're saying that renewables alone can solve a lot of the countries around the world 
energy needs. Some countries like the UK uh, and France, for example, among a host of others, do use nuclear power. So, look, I'm sorry to sit on the fence, but that is a moot question. However, in, in Australia, we're pushing ahead with a nuclear-free 100% renewables energy grid. That's at the um, direction of the Australian energy market operator, AEMO, and they sort of map out every year that they update their plans for where the grid will go. And they're saying that Australia's energy grid, they expect it to be completely coal-free by before 2040 with a little bit of gas bubbling away in the background. That's just a little bit to provide like on-demand power if there's sort of exceptional circumstances where the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining all at once or all around the country. It's sort of all dead for renewable input. So that's, to answer your question, yeah, there are countries like Australia that are betting big on renewables and energy experts alongside AEMO, our electricity grid designer, many of them, you know, highly respected and not, not just green advocates, to, to be honest. A, a lot of people from across the divide say renewables can do it. The thing is it hasn't been done yet, so we're in uncharted territory, but with the plummeting cost of those big grid-scale batteries, which are now being built purely commercially without government subsidy, it's looking pretty good for that too, I'd have to say. Because there are big concerns with nuclear power. I know, um, you know, you mentioned France there. France is sort of forging ahead with expanding its program, but other countries like Germany really sort of scaling back a little bit more gun-shy, I suppose, about using nuclear. And that's partly because of the environmental impact, but also because, you know, uranium could be used to go to nuclear weapons or, you know, they're just a bit shy about nuclear proliferation. So I guess are those fears kind of founded or have they been a bit overblown because disasters like Chernobyl have really seeped into the global imagination? Well, people, you know, will argue that nuclear has operated pretty incident-free relatively compared to, you know, other forms of energy, except when there's an accident, it's mm. a catastrophe. Uh, it is fair to say that it is getting safer, you know, and Fukushima was not a failure of the plant, was it? You know, it was, it was a tsunami that came in and inundated the reactor there. Australia does have locations that you could safely predict would be away from um, potential inundation and so on as well, it's really going to be down in the future, you know, with the increasing safety of the technology, I think it's going to be down to community acceptance. So when we're talking about why hasn't it been into the political debate in, in this election that we've got going on in, in 2020, for example, that the, the um, Parliament, the federal parliament held a nuclear energy inquiry and it made some sort of well supported from the Liberal side. There are a lot of Liberal MPs speaking out saying Australia has a moratorium on nuclear energy, but they said let's lift it just a crack so we can allow research in Australia in how we would apply nuclear power to our energy grid. Nationals MPs, Liberal MPs, um, you know, Katie Allen has one, for example, she's a moderate quite green-friendly Liberal MP who's all for nuclear power. She's got a PhD in medical science, but straight away eyeing the controversy, the community controversy that would fly around this, the Prime Minister and the Energy Minister stamped on it. those calls that day, absolutely not, never going to happen, we're not lifting it. Hasn't stopped the issue bubbling away from those MPs in, in the background, but it's outside of those safety concerns. It seems to me anyway that the community controversy 
politicians at the moment are just not willing to push through it. So what about the economic equation? Clearly, France and the UK are seeing that it is stacking up for them. Mm. Why are we taking a different read on that economic equation here in Australia for nuclear? There's an um, analyst agency called Lazard, and they produce a report uh, every year that's called the levelised cost of power generation. What it means, how much dollars does it cost to create a megawatt of energy from solar, wind, nuclear, coal, and so on. And nuclear doesn't stack up well at the moment. So solar's between, and this is a broad average around the world. It's actually a bit cheaper in Australia for solar and wind, but it's about 30 to 40 bucks per megawatt for solar, for wind, 25 to 50, you know, depending on local conditions, where you've got to situate, et cetera. That's why there's a gap. Coal is 65 to 152 bucks, but nuclear is at least 130 to 200. So as no one in the developed world is too keen to build new coal plants, nuclear is right up there with costs. So that's why there's no real sizzle at the moment, in my opinion, about getting nuclear into the energy grid. It is bubbling away in the background because it provides that stable, continuous, large-scale energy generation. What Australia is doing is through AEMO, the energy grid designer, they're looking at what you would call a dispersed grid, I guess, to put it simply, where you've got batteries all around the place to back up the wind and the sun when their inputs aren't coming in. And then you have, we've got so much land, we're building onshore wind and solar farms all across the country too, and we're linking it up with a lot of transmission lines. And there's a cost to those transmission lines, to be sure, but AEMO's calculating that to be cheaper. And also we've got that moratorium that I spoke about on nuclear as well. In Australia, that's holding back the debate. What's coming down the line though, guys, is new technology. It's, it's not around the corner tomorrow, but it's called small modular reactors. You'll hear our friend Barnaby Joyce talking about that quite a lot. It's a nuclear reactor that companies such as Rolls-Royce and others are developing. It's based on the power generation, the nuclear power that goes inside a submarine. So it's really small, fits on the back of a truck, but it's not commercial. Rolls-Royce got a G up from the UK government when Boris Johnson talked about putting nuclear power in their um, ambitious clean energy plans, for example. They're still talking about 2029 as a commercialisation date for that. And by 2029... You know, Australia will be heading towards 100% renewables grid if things go to plan anyway. Does the fact that we'll be getting nuclear submarines change the equation here at all? I don't know if it changes any of those equations that we were talking about, but it does give the debate a bit of a kick along, doesn't it? Um, Because Mm. we'll be developing our own nuclear capability in Australia to handle those submarines and service them. So it's sort of a logical step and it's going to be tempting for advocates to, to really fire up the debate again, I'd say. That was Mike Foley, who's the climate and energy correspondent for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. He was good, wasn't he, Jan? Yeah, he was. And interesting hearing him you know, talk about us developing our own nuclear capabilities. Obviously, we've got submarines that we've purchased and will be working on. It seems like, given that's the case, my hunch is... We're going to be hearing a little bit more about nuclear energy and how we harness it in this country over the coming years. Yeah, my feeling is that by the time that happens, our renewables will have expanded so much 
mm. um, that, that maybe that will neutralise that push for nuclear. Yeah, either way, at least we've got a little bit of context as to what it is and why we don't hear about it too much. Thanks, Mike. Maybe we can avoid having three-eyed fish in our rivers. Listener.